Okay, before we get started this evening, we've got, um, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, have prayer. We have a little special treat. A friend of mine, uh, Timothy Lipsy, who is a missionary down in Brazil, is here. So we're going to start. He's going to give about a 10-minute or so uh, orientation for us on himself, on Brazil. I first met uh, Tim about, I don't know, about 10 years ago back down at Baraka in Houston, and he was coming through at some point. So I thought um, it would be good to have him just orient us to situation of Christianity in Brazil and give us a little understanding of what, what's going on there. And then when he's done, then we'll start our study on Genesis. So why don't we just begin with a few moments of silent prayer, give everyone an opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening, the freedom that we have in this nation to worship you. We thank you for the continued protection over this nation, watching out for us both in terms of the combat in Iraq and the ongoing threats of terrorism. We pray that you would continue to protect us and preserve us because we know that uh, no matter how well trained our military is, no matter how diligent our security services might be, we, no matter how advanced our technology, our security is in your hands and your hands alone. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that we might continue to send out and support missionaries who take the gospel throughout the world, that we might continue to uh, stand fast in support of uh, the Jews and, and Israel. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand the importance of the Various doctrines we're studying related to origins and creation. We pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tim, come on up. Uh, Tim was uh, born, you were born in Brazil, right? His father was a missionary. Uh, he was Plymouth Brethren, went down there about 50 years ago. And uh, Tim has sort of followed in his footsteps, and I'm going to let him... Uh, talk to you and give you an overview of what he's doing and also the situation down there. It's a pleasure to be here and to meet new brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, I was born in Brazil, like Robbie told you. My father went down there in 1947, and uh, he's been a missionary there ever since. He just passed away last year and uh, wasn't very anxious to come back home anymore. He didn't like the cold of the U.S. anymore. He just retired in Brazil and died with his boots on. Uh, and I've been down there ever since. Firstly, I'm going to talk a bit about Christianity. Um, Christianity in Brazil is um, quite something. They said it used to be a five or six years ago, the second growest, fastest uh, Protestant growing country in the world, United States being the first and uh, Brazil being the second. And actually, what you see is really true. You see a lot of people nowadays walking with Bibles around. Uh, years ago, they, that was very uncommon. 
I remember when uh, I was a kid walking to Sunday school, we had uh, kind of things where you invited people to go to church, and I didn't know where to put my Bible because I was so ashamed because people made so much fun of it, and it was very uncommon. But uh, nowadays on a Sunday morning as you go to church, you just see a lot of people walking to church or carrying Bibles. So it's become very common. But uh, while a lot of people carry Bibles around, not many know what the plan of God is. Not many know the basis of salvation. And really, Christianity isn't that healthy. Uh, much of it is based on emotions. Uh, the... But your prosperity gospel is very common down there, and that is uh, probably 50 or more percent of the people that uh, say they know Christ or say they're Christians or Protestants or whatever really are into the prosperity gospel and are all asking God to give them cars or whatever. And being a poor country and having so many necessities, that appeals a lot to the Brazilians because uh, they're in need, you know. And uh, unfortunately, you see, like here, a lot of times the preacher is offering things, a lot of uh, promises that the Bible doesn't promise and that they can never be fulfilled. But uh, they're just, uh, what can you say, they're just uh, taken in by these promises, false promises, and they pledge everything to the church, give everything to the church. And so it's, it's really shameful. And uh, But there are those churches that preach, not many, I would say the minority, you know, not probably, I don't know what the percentages are in the United States that are sound and are, are really biblically oriented, probably a minority also, but probably down there even less than here, a lot less than here. And so the challenge is very big to stay and to, to teach the word and to orient people and really show them what the plan of God is and what... Uh, he has in store for us and, and, and what the objective of the Christian way of life is. That's one of the things because of the appeal and because of the presentation of the gospel and the charismatic movement is so uh, thriving with, you know, it's, uh, I would say that probably over 80% of the Christians are charismatics down there, you know, and they just think that uh, God is there to take care of your health and take care of uh, other things. So uh, the challenge is very big. Every so often you do few people, you do encounter people that are interested in the Word, and uh, when you give a sane presentation of the Word of God and the objective, and you do a, a, a study, you know, systematical study of the Word of God, that they are interested. And so we have, we do that down there. Um, I myself, I was born in a missionary family and had the gospel presented to me since I was a kid. But uh, when I was seven years old, my brother thought that I should uh, come to know the Lord or give my life to Christ or whatever. And he told my mother, and we uh, knelt beside the bed, and I, she prayed, and I, you know, went and repeated the prayer. But I really don't know if that was my salvation or not. And uh, one of the things that had a big problem with me is because my father, he came from a life of crime, and he had such a change in his life. And, you know, when he came to know the Lord, the whole scene just changed, you know. And he always talked about the experience, and I never had the experience. <laughs> and that was a real problem to me because, uh, my, you know, I thought that it just didn't take. Here I did what I was supposed to do, and it, it, it wouldn't take, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, since my father did like giving his testimony, and he had a very uh, thriving testimony and very impressive testimony to give, you know, and I didn't have any. And, but all the other people that came to camp, he started the camp there, a Bible camp. It was one of the first Bible camps in Brazil for the objective of studying the Bible. And everybody would sort of follow his example, and everybody would say how they felt and how this load just rolled off their back and how, you know. 
and those things never happened to me, and it, it was a real problem. Uh, when I was around 14, 15, we had a guy come around, a missionary, and he uh, just was teaching that salvation was not based upon the way you felt, you know, and, and was not based upon experience, but based upon faith and uh, believing in God's word. And, you know, if you believed, you were saved no matter what, if no matter how you felt. Well, that made sense to me, and I really, uh, I would say my Christian life and started evolving from then. If I was a Christian before or not, I don't know. But uh, I took great bigger interest in the Word of God. And uh, when I just before I went into college, when I was about 18, I came across the Colonel's books and the Colonel's tapes, and um, I started listening to him, and that made great uh, uh, sense to me. Of course, it just killed my mother and my father, mainly my mother, because they, you know, the colonel's so controversial, and a lot of people, you know, were saying that he wanted to take the Bible, the blood out of the Bible, and all the rest, and, uh, oh, boy, they gave me a hard time. But fortunately, I got some of his books, and I, uh, there were missionaries who I did respect, and they were great teachers of the Word, and I gave the books to them. I said, look, I'm, I'm just starting. Read these books. Tell me if it's heresy. Tell me if it's... It's not biblically correct. And I remember one of them uh, got the blood of Christ even. And um, he read it and he said, uh, Tim, I agree with you 90%, 90, 99%. But I would never put it in those terms. I wouldn't use that language. And he says, don't talk too much about it. But he says, frankly, I have never appreciated the Lord's Supper as much as I did this Sunday after reading that book. So that was a great comfort to me, and I said, no matter what other people say, I'm going to continue you know, listening to the tapes and reading the books. And so I was greatly oriented by his ministry. And then in the 80s, I asked permission to see if I could translate his books into Portuguese. And that's when I went to Baraka. The colonel wanted to get to know me better, and he wouldn't give permission without knowing you know, where I came from, where I was going. And so uh, that's when... Uh, my knowledge or, or my acquaintance with him started, and we've had a, a good relationship since then. Translated about ten books into Portuguese, and uh, of these uh, ten books, I published five already, five or six, and so they're circulating. If you have any people that need Brazilian copies, or you know, I sent them to Baraka, just a big box with probably sixty or seventy books, and so you can ask it from them, and they'll send you Portuguese copies of of some of the books that that he has written. Other than that, I'm running the camp down there, and uh, uh, it's a Bible camp, and uh, my main thrust would be teaching the Word, and uh, besides children's camps and young people's camps, I'm starting conferences where we uh, concentrate on teaching uh, the Word systematically, and just in March, we had Jim Nyers come from the Ukraine. I met him last year in uh, September or October when I went to the Ukraine to give a some classes there. I met him and I, I enjoyed the fellowship with him and I thought he was well oriented and I, uh, we invited him down to Brazil and he most graciously came and uh, we had a great time and the people really enjoyed it. I thought we would have probably 30, you know, 20, 30 people per night and we had around 60 or more people every night and uh, we had every night meetings and then Saturday all day six meetings and uh, on Sunday another four. And uh, August, Robbie Dean's coming down, and his wife, and he's going to be teaching us, and I hope to have more people. I think the that week of uh, conferences were so uh, 
were such an impact on the people that did attend, and they liked it so much. Um, I hope that more will come to the second uh, uh, time that we have, the second week of conferences that we have in, in August. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I hope uh, Robbie Dean's rested and <laughs> can can give us the word down there. But that's uh, mainly what uh, what I'm doing down there. And besides that, I teach also, and I take trips and, and conferences and and at the local church that I'm a member of a Baptist church down there in Brazil, and I teach about eight to uh, six to eight months per year and special classes on special subjects, and so I do enjoy enjoy teaching also. Well, if anyone has any questions about Brazil or what's going on down there, or Tim's ministry down there, you can uh, ask him, corner him, and ask him questions after class. But, uh, you know, that might, I was just thinking when you mentioned that about having some of the colonel stuff in Portuguese, we've got a lot of Portuguese over in Rhode Island, right? Community over there. So that might, if anybody is over that way, that may be something to uh, uh, get involved with. All right, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we will continue our study of creation. Genesis chapter 1, continuing our study in creation. In the last two classes, we went through four questions that are often asked and we must understand the answer to before we can actually get into the background of the, of the text itself. The first question was one that you often hear from liberals. You often hear this from uh, in a college classroom, university classroom, sometimes from people you know who have been uh, raised in a liberal church. And the question is, isn't Genesis 1 just a myth comparable to other ancient legends and mythologies? And we went through that and we compared it to Enuma Elish, which is the uh, Babylonian creation myth, which is the one that is usually chosen, usually picked up by uh, some as saying that's one that the Bible's comparable to. And we saw there was no real comparison. It's radically different. You have a, a cosmogony, and the cosmogony which means a, a story of origins or the origin of the cosmos. They, the uh, pagan cosmogonies all start with existing matter. Uh, the gods themselves are personifications of nature forces, and they have bodies. And we saw how Marduk slew Tiamat, and from her body, which would be matter, the universe, her body was... Uh, hacked in two, and half her body was used to make the earth, the other half to make the universe. And so we went through that, answering the question negatively, that there is a radical difference between Genesis 1 and its emphasis on creation from nothing, and the God of the Bible is the God who is in control of all of the forces of nature, and all of the pagan mythologies, whether they're Egyptian, Greek, Babylonian, Akkadian, Ugaritic, uh, Hindu, uh, Asian, whatever the uh, religious uh, creation myths are, they all stack up the same with, with modern evolution. You have a, uh, long periods of times, eons, uh, cycles of ages. You have an, an initial status of chaos, usually watery chaos, some other kind of chaos, but there is et- sort of eternally existing matter from which the uh, universe is made and everything sort of gradually develops from that. So 
even though Darwinism has a lot of technical scientific verbiage and terminology, and you can dress it up with a lot of formulas and a lot of other um, window dressing, it is still an expression of the same kind of thing that you find in the in the ancient myths. Second question we answered was the question, could there be millions of years, or even billions of years, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and could this not be the time frame for historical geology, the dinosaurs, and cavemen? And we, that's really two questions. We answered the first one uh, somewhat positively, yes, there theoretically could be millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. There is clearly a time lapse between Genesis 1-1, which states in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth, and verse 2, which says, but the earth was formless and void. Something happened in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 to render the earth uh, formless and void. But to press that as a way to... uh, resolve the problems of historical geology evolution is in insufficient. No self-respecting uh, scientist would ever accept that because of its implications. And if you think so, you're just deceiving yourself. Uh, there's no reason why dinosaurs could not coexist with man. The average size of a dinosaur was about the size of a German shepherd. Uh, many, many dinosaurs were much smaller. There are a lot of different questions people ask about dinosaurs, which we will uh, answer more more when we get to the flood section in Genesis 6 through 9. People also ask, well, how could the dinosaurs have been on the ark? And there's no reason that Noah had to take the large, largest animals on the ark, he could have taken infants on the ark. He could have taken uh, young animals on the ark. But even if he did, even if he took full-size creatures on the ark, knowing what we know about how many, just how many uh, species there were, and the kinds that the scriptures talk about is a broader category than what we know of as species. Even knowing all of that, what we will discover when we get to our study of the ark is that that the animals on the ark only took up about half the space on the ark. There was more than sufficient space for all of these animals and and many more along with the food required for a year. Of course, you have animals can hibernate. One question is, well, how do the animals uh, live on the ark for a year? How do they feed them? Well, they could go into some sort of hibernation for a year. There are many different ways to handle those those, uh, situations. But the only reason we want to introduce a concept of millions or billions of years is because secular science, which has a starting point that uh, the Bible is not considered, of all the data we look at, uh, the Bible is, is data we completely ignore, and on the basis of presuppositions that automatically uh, set their direction or automatically presume ancient ages, that uh, that's the only reason we introduced millions of years. And as I, I made the point when we went through that, that for many, many years, uh, many, many centuries, up until the late 1700s, early 1800s, no one who started with the Bible ever understood the universe to be more than uh, 10, 12,000 years of age at, at the most. The only reason you introduce millions of years is because science has suddenly said, well, there are millions of years. Third question, how long are the days in Genesis 1? And as we saw last time, 
These days are clearly 24-hour periods of time. There are solar days. They are defined as uh, evening and morning. Uh, the terminology uh, used in the Hebrew of Yom with an, uh, a number, day one, day two, day three, it clearly indicates 24-hour periods. The term Yom for day in the Hebrew when it is used in and of itself, apart from any other, any numbers or any other factors, can sometimes mean a period of time. But when it is used with a number, one, two, three, four, or when it is defined in terms of morning and uh, evening and morning, it always means a 24-hour period. Then the last question was, what about creation through the process of evolution? What about creation through the process of evolution? And there are five views that have been set forth as what I would call accommodationist positions to evolution. What happened in the 19th century was as science began to cut itself loose from the Bible up until the early 1700s, every self-respecting scientist and geologist believed in a literal universal Noahic flood, and they built their science assuming the Bible to be true. Starting with the Enlightenment in the late 1600s, early 1700s, scientists began to reject the Bible, and as they ignored what the Bible said, uh, they were coming up with conclusions that were much different from earlier science at that time, uh, different from the, from the views of men like uh, Newton uh, and many others who were founding fathers of modern science. And so they used, so as they came up with conclusions, Christians decided that in some way they had to, they had to accommodate themselves. Just a minute, let me see if I can get our projector to work here. Well, we had a bulb go out Sunday morning. And now the let me try one more time. Well, if I hold it down, if I hold it down, we, we can we can we'll have a light. So we need to figure out how to get this fixed by Sunday morning. Uh, the first view is is. Um, uh, the view that is called theistic evolution. I'm going to work in a process that is the one that is most removed from taking the Bible literally. And theistic evolution is simply the idea that God works behind the process of evolution. And it's, a, he's, it's indirect. The acti creative activity of God is indirect. He's just out there in the cosmos somewhere, and he uses all the mechanisms of evolution the mechanism of the survival of the fittest in order to bring about advance through the various kinds until eventually man evolves. So theistic evolution assumes the veracity of everything that science teaches and then just kind of sticks God in there to, as a salve to their religious conscience. The second view is called progressive, progressive creationism. And in progressive creationism, you have long periods of time which begin with a day. So you have a day here, and that, that may be a 24-hour day, and then you have evolution take place. Then you have some thousands or millions of years later, uh, the second 24-hour day, God has another creative activity, and then you have another 
uh, period of evolution. Then you have the third day. So the creation days are actually 24 hours, but there are thousands or millions of years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years in between these creative days. Then the third view is called threshold evolution. And that is very similar to progressive, the progressive concept. And, and instead of having literal 24-hour days, the, the God just comes in and interferes at, at each stage, breaking through these uh, barriers between the species. Then the fourth view is the day-age view. The day-age view looks at each of these 24, each of these creative days is not 24-hour days, but is days of extended periods of time. This wasn't a 24-hour day. It was a million-year-long period of time. So everything that took place in day one is considered uh, the first million years or two million years. Day two is the next two or three million years. Day three is the next two or three million years. But that doesn't fit the language of the text, and you have other internal problems, which we'll point out this evening. And then the view that many people thought solved the problem was a view put forth by a man named Thomas Chalmers, who was an, a Scots, Scottish Presbyterian and was later uh, uh, popularized by a man named uh, Pember. And the, I will call this the Chalmers-Pember gap view. They took a very ancient view that I looked at last time, traces back to at least the time of Christ uh, among rabbis, that there is a time period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And up until the early 19th century when Chalmers hijacked the view, this gap, this gap view was simply there and was understood to be the time when Satan and the angels were created and fell and the beginning of the angelic conflict and the beginning of spiritual warfare in the universe. And it was during that time that Satan was put on trial by God and sentenced to the lake of fire. But then he challenges God and challenges the veracity of God, the justice of God, and the fairness of God, and says, well, you really haven't given your creatures a chance to prove that they can be God, that they can run things just as well as you can. And so God says, well, fine, what we're going to do is establish a test case right on your very own territory of planet Earth, and we will demonstrate through these volitional creatures, man, uh, exactly why a creature cannot function independently of his creator, no matter what he tries to do, no matter how good he tries to be, no matter how intelligent he, he is, a creature cannot function successfully apart from or independent of the Creator. So the Chalmers-Pember-Gap view uh, tried to solve the problem by inserting all the geologic ages in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and make that the, the period of the catastrophe. According to their view, they would say that all the evidence that you see of fossils took place as a result of that, that judgment that took place then. The problem with that is manifold. Number one, it doesn't fit science very well. Uh, number two, it doesn't fit the scriptures at all theologically because uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 emphasizes the fact that death, and it's an anarthrous noun, and an anarthrous noun means you're talking about the principle, the essence of that noun. So when it says that death 
uh, came by, by man. It is not just talking about the uh, spiritual death that came from Adam because the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is physical resurrection. Death came by man and the resurrection or physical resurrection by Jesus Christ. So the context there has to be a, com- a comparison or contrast between like objects. And therefore that must be talking about physical death. And it is not just the physical death of mankind, but as we saw from Romans 8, that the entire universe, the entire world... And all of nature, all of creation suffers and groans under the curse of sin. So Adam's decision to disobey God reverberated throughout all of the different kinds. It changed the function of all the animals. It changed their biology. It changed their morphology. It changed the climate on the earth. It changed. uh, You now have thorns and thistles. You didn't have thorns and thistles before. Uh, Women now go through a menstrual cycle, which they didn't go through before. Uh, you have the, uh, the serpent now crawls along the ground uh, rather than walking upright. So there are physiological changes that took place as a result of a spiritual decision. And one of the consequences of that spiritual penalty or the penalty of spiritual death, one of the consequences was physical death. And you see in, in evolution, the mechanism of evolution is death, survival of the fittest. The mechanism of advance is through death. So if you have a, a worldwide judgment, you have pre-Adamic races, you have uh, pre-Adamic animals that, that live on this earth before Genesis 1-2, and they're all packed in ice and they are the fossils, then basically you have Adam isn't created in a perfect world. Adam is created in a graveyard. And he it's not perfect anymore because there is death everywhere and evidence of death everywhere. So you can't solve the problem simply by compromising and accommodating. You you have to realize that modern science is built on an epistemological, by that I mean a knowledge base, that is completely antagonistic to revelation. They do not believe at the get-go that God can reveal himself to man because you can't analyze it scientifically. It's not subject to rationalism or empiricism, and therefore they invalidate revelation as a valid means of knowledge at the very beginning. So you have to realize the divine viewpoint is set against human viewpoint, human viewpoint against divine viewpoint, and you can't come in and try to compromise just so you feel a little more comfortable living around a bunch of uh, unbelievers who reject the existence of God. So you have uh, prior to the uh, prior to uh, Genesis one one and one two, you have just the existence of the angels. You have the uh, trial of Satan and the fall of Satan, and God judges the earth. This is what we see in Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a clear statement that He creates the universe. There's a vastly different universe than the universe we have today, just as the universe that comes into existence called the new heavens and new earth described in Revelation 22 will be a vastly different universe. In that universe, there will be no sun. There will be no moon. There will be no... Since there's no sun, I think we could extrapolate that there are no stars because the sun is just a star like any other star. And so we have a completely different kind of universe in existence then, and we can assume the original universe was like that. And just as the uh, 
final universe is lit entirely by the glory of God. So the initial universe would have been lit entirely by the glory of God. And as Scripture says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. However, we have a contrast with verse 2, that the earth became, and we saw that this should be translated, but the earth became formless and void, or empty and void, tohu vabohu in the Hebrew. That's the first term that is used elsewhere in Scripture to denote judgment. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, the thing you have to understand is darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is the absence of light. It is not the uh, it is not something that in and of itself is positive. You don't create darkness. And in light of this, uh, someone sent me this email this week which makes this same point. I don't know if this is true or not, or I don't know if somebody made this up, and this is wishful thinking. Maybe they had a conflict in class, and this is how they wish they had handled it. Uh, we all have episodes like that. After we have a conflict, we think, if I had only said this. But we'll uh, take it at its face value. At a certain college, there was a professor with a reputation for being tough on Christians. At the first class every semester, he asked if anyone was a Christian and proceeded to degrade and mock their statement of faith. One semester, he asked the question, and a young man raised his hand when asked if anyone was a Christian. The professor asked, Did God make everything, young man? Yes, he did, sir, the young man replied. The professor responded, Well, if God made everything, then God made evil. And if we can only create from within ourselves, then God is evil. The student did not have a response, and the professor was happy to have once again proved the Christian faith to be a myth. Then another man raised his hand and said, May I ask you something, sir? Yes, you may, responded the professor. The young man stood up and said, Sir, is there such a thing as cold? Of course there is. What kind of question is that? Haven't you ever been cold? The young man replied, Actually, sir, cold does not exist. What we consider to be cold is really only the absence of heat. Absolute zero is when there is absolutely no heat, but cold does not really exist. We have only created that term to describe how we feel when heat is not there. The young man continued, Sir, is there such a thing as dark? Once again, the professor responded, Of course there is. And once again, the student replied, Actually, sir, darkness does not exist. Darkness is really only the absence of light. Darkness is only a term man developed to describe what happens when there is no light present. Finally, the young man asked, Sir, is there such a thing as evil? The professor responded, Of course, we have rapes and murders and violence everywhere in the world. Those things are evil. The student replied, Actually, sir, evil does not exist. Evil is simply the absence of good. Evil is a term man developed to describe the absence of good. Good um, it says God did not create evil. It isn't like truth or love, which exist as virtues, uh, like heat, um, which exist as, as, as virtues, like heat and light. Evil is simply the state where God is not present, or where good, where, where God is not present, or where good is not present, like cold without heat or darkness without light. Of course, it concludes with the professor had nothing to say. Now, I don't know if any of you caught it, but Obviously, the person who stood up was a Roman Catholic. You know why? Because Catholics define evil as the, what the term they use is privation. Uh, 
which is the absence of good. But you see, the Bible, that's the mistake in this whole analogy, just to teach you a little critical thinking, is that the Bible sees unrighteousness and evil as something qualitative and something that, that is not just the absence of evil. But the point that he is making is that, that, that cold is the absence of heat, and the darkness is the absence of light. So when we look at the primordial earth in Genesis 1-2, and there is no darkness, there is no light, there is no heat, there would be absolute cold, and the physics involved here would be such that the planet would be much different from anything we could imagine. In a state of absolute zero, the entire planet would be frozen, and possibly, I've heard some say that it would shrink to about a tenth of its present size. I'm not a physicist. I don't know uh, if that that is necessarily true. But I do know that at absolute zero, it would be frozen solid. The water is there, so it would be a frozen, uh, the water would all be frozen. It would be packed in ice. And that would definitely uh, change the dynamics of anything that was there. The renovation that would occur would be phenomenal. Now, another reason why you can't have fossilization and uh, dinosaurs and all the uh, pre-Adamic pre, pre, uh, race here from a scientific framework is you have two main events in Scripture that talk about a worldwide flood or, or, or the watery mass around the earth. You have the condition in Genesis 1, 2, and you have the condition in Genesis 6 through 9 with the with Noah's flood and the worldwide flood. But if you were to, what would you look for to prove that there was a universal flood at the time of Noah? What would you expect to find geologically? You would expect to find uh, millions of dead things scattered all over the earth, buried in sedimentary rock as evidence of, of a worldwide flood. Now, if all of these dead things buried in sedimentary rock were laid down in Genesis 1, between 1, 1 and 1, 2, then you would have a universal flood that lasted a year. It only rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but the waters continued to rise for another, I think it was another 180 days, and then they stayed at that level for some time later, and it was from the day Noah stepped on the ark until the day he stepped off the ark was a period of 360 days. So if you have that much water swirling around the earth, along with the other geologic cataclysms that would have taken place at that time, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, tectonic movements, all of that caused by this enormous water pressure, uh, you would have had all of that take place for a whole year and no evidence whatsoever. So what you do by placing fossilization between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is lay the foundation for rejecting the universality of Noah's flood. And you can, I don't care what you try to do, how you try to justify it, the reality is if you do that, you basically don't have any evidence whatsoever anywhere other than the Bible of the Noahic flood. And that doesn't fit from a scientific framework in terms of the descriptions given in, in the Bible. So those were the four questions we looked at. And now we begin with the 
six days of restoration. The six days of restoration. So just to review on the stages of creation, God creates an original universe. It's in light. Then there's the fall of Lucifer, and there is darkness in the universe. The earth is packed in light, called Tohu Vabohu in Genesis 1-2. And then there is the new creation, or restoration, described in verses uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, down to chapter 2, verse 3. So these are the stages of creation and restoration. We'll begin tonight by looking at how the tohu babohu is reversed. Tohu refers to that which is chaotic and unformed. Uh, bohu refers to that which is empty or unfilled. So in the first three days, God is going to form all the various spheres. He's going to form the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the, the biosphere, the geosphere, and then um, he is going to fill each one of those spheres in the second part of uh, uh, the second three days. So there's a perfect pattern here of, of uh, description. Day one, we have the creation of light and the separation of light from darkness. This indicates that time enters in at this point. You have a temporal mechanism established of light and darkness establishing the cycle with the rotation of the earth of a 24-hour day. So let's look at the verses, Genesis 1, 3 to 1, 5. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. This, When this day begins, the earth is a dark, watery mass, and it is the Spirit of God who is hovering, or uh, one way to translate that, that verb there, uh, that's translated hovering in verse 2 is the idea of fluttering. The images of a bird, of a mother bird fluttering its wings over a nest to keep it warm. When you're fluttering those wings, it's generating energy. Energy generates heat. And what you have is this ice cold planet and the Holy Spirit is now energizing the planet. Before there can be any creation, there has to be the introduction of energy into, back into the system. And the energy comes from God. And then God speaks, and we know from Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that it is Jesus Christ himself who is the actual agent of creation. And he is the logos of God. He is the word of God. And so God uses his word here. He speaks, and this implies the presence of the second person of the Trinity in the formation of the, the items in the creation. God speaks and says, let there be light. And there was light. So, as I said earlier, darkness implies the absence of light. Uh, symbolically in Scripture, it implies the absence of good. When God speaks here, we see the term Elohim, the plural ending I-M, indicates a plurality in the Godhead. It does not have to be taken as a plural, but there are certain implications in the text. For example, down in verses uh, 20, 26 through 28, when God says, Let us make man in our image, the us, first person, plural pronoun, 
indicates, again, a plurality in the Godhead. So at this point, we see all three members of the Godhead involved in creation. It is God the Father who is the planner of the planner and architect of the universe. This is seen in Genesis 1-1, and God created the heavens and the earth. The Holy Spirit is the energizer of all things. He is the one who brings life, just as he will bring life out of death when we are regenerate and made alive in Christ. And it is Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, who is the specific creator of all things, as we see here in verse 3. We see the same implication in several New Testament verses. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we read, for God, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Notice, Paul is quoting Genesis 1, 3 as if it literally took place. If you were to look at Genesis 4 and analyze what Paul is teaching in Genesis 4, it's built on, on an analogy that assumes the reality of Genesis 1-3. If Genesis 1-3 is not true, then whatever Paul is teaching in 2 Corinthians 4 is not true. The New Testament is built on the Old Testament and assumes the literal veracity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. 2 Corinthians 4-6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the analogy is that just as God illuminated your thinking to the truth of the gospel when you heard the gospel, which is tantamount to the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8-11, when that truth is built on or is taught through the principle of Genesis 1-3 that light shall shine out of darkness. If that's not true, then you have problems with the illumination of the Holy Spirit at the instant of gospel hearing. 1 John 1-5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So darkness being the absence of light, if God creates the heavens and the earth and God is perfect, whatever God creates is perfect, then God wasn't creating darkness. Where did the darkness come from? The darkness is not some primordial building block, which some people try to argue for. It can't be some primordial building block of creation because darkness in and of itself is nothing. It is simply the absence of light. John 8:12 Jesus said spoke to them and said I am the light of the world he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness but shall have the light of life so once again we see that consistent with the rest of scripture we have to maintain that darkness is a picture of sin and is the result of the entrance of sin and rebellion into the cosmos so when god creates light in genesis 1:1:4 the first thing he says about it when he sees the light and observes it is that it was good the light is good the darkness is not he doesn't say the darkness was good he just says the light was good and then god separated or divided the light from the darkness Darkness is not removed completely, as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth, but it is separated, and together darkness and light are used as a means of telling time and a means of of developing a clock in the universe. And then we have a a discussion here that, uh, in verse 5, 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now, God begins to name things. God begins to use a vocabulary. The reason God begins to use a vocabulary is he is initializing the vocabulary of the human race. We know from, from at least tentatively from studies related to the acquisition of language that, that the theory is that people learn language from hearing it spoken. They can't, in, in a couple of cases where there are feral children who've never been exposed to the, to a, to a human voice, that after so many months, they can't learn language because that when once at the time of birth they start hearing language you start speaking to them when they're born their brain cells begin to develop and begin to process that language and develop the ability to process language and if they live to be uh 2 years of age without hearing a human voice then the brain no longer has that ability to to process and categorize language that means that God is the one. That's one of the great problems with evolution is how does the human race ever learn to speak? If, if you just have this man or woman, you know, Lucy pops up out here in the sub-Saharan uh, Africa somewhere, and uh, she's, who, who's she going to hear speak? Who's she going to talk to? I mean, how's this going to develop? Uh, it's, it's not. It's just a physical impossibility. So God is the one who originates language, and he is the one who begins to, to identify uh, terms. And I believe that when, when after he creates uh, Adam, he begins to give him instruction, and that initializes uh, Adam's vocabulary. And now the first thing he says, he saw, sees the light, it's good. He divides the light from the darkness, calls the light day. The darkness he calls night. And it's clear that this is the beginning of some sort of temporal succession, a succession of darkness and light. And that indicates, since we have the final phrase, so the evening and the morning were the first day, that the earth is now rotating on its axis, even though there is no light bearer. There's no sun yet, remember. There's no moon yet. There's no stars. There is just light. Now, this makes it clear in and of itself that these are 24-hour days. In fact, there's so much information given here, evening and morning, day one. There's so much information there about chronology that I don't think God could have done anything more to say these are 24-hour days. In terms of Hebrew vocabulary, he has said that. And it was necessary for him, for Moses at least, to make that point and for God to, to say that in light of the fact that in all of the pagan cosmogony around them, the Egyptian uh, origin myths, the Babylonian origin myths, they all had eons of time, just like we face today with, with modern Darwinism. So God makes it very clear from the beginning that the way the earth was actually created by him is radically different from the way man has uh, tried to explain it. Furthermore, this physical, this light is clearly physical and visible. This means that the presence of visible light waves would include the entire electromagnetic spectrum. It would include ultraviolet light and short wavelength radiations at one end of the spectrum, and it would include infrared light and long wave phenomena at the other end of the spectrum. By setting these electro electromagnetic forces into operation, 
uh, God, in effect, is completing the energizing of the universe. So there's a perfect logical order here. The Holy Spirit begins it with this fluttering or hovering over the earth in, in verse 2. And then with the creation of light, you have the conclusion of the uh, energizing of the physical cosmos. All the types of force and energy which interact in the universe are now present. We have electromagnetic, gravitational, and nuclear forces all activated by, by day one. The other interesting thing that you see here is that the, the clock starts at dawn. It's, it's evening and then morning day one, so the day, day two starts with dawn of the next day. This is contrary to the way the Jews later told time. The Jews later told time and marked the time by by dusk so that it began when the sun went down. This is another indication that this is not just Jewish mythology because if it was Jewish mythology, they would have had the day starting with the dusk and not with the dawn. And this was understood by uh, a rabbi by the name of Rashbam. I love the abbreviations they give the rabbis, Rambam, Rashbam, all kinds of different names. And he, he was Rabbi Samuel ben Meir, and he understood that original creation had the new day starting at the beginning. So that's day one. Day one, light, the separation of light from darkness, and temporal separation. Day two, we see the development of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. The atmosphere is the, this is the creation of all of the gases and chemicals that make up the atmosphere that are necessary for the sustenance of uh, biological life on the planet. There's no other planet in known, known to science that has an atmosphere, anything uh, approaching that of planet Earth. Furthermore, there is the separation of the waters on the earth now into two different spheres, the upper waters and the lower waters, and there is a, a spatial separation between them, which in the old King James was called the firmament, indicating that it was some so, something solid, something firm, but that is not the meaning of the Hebrew word. Genesis 1.6 we read, Then God said... God makes a commandment here actually from the context. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning second day. Now what is the key word here? The key word is expanse. You have expanse mentioned once in one six. It's mentioned one, two, three times in seven, so that's four times so far. And it's mentioned again in, in eight, so that's five times expanse is mentioned in three verses. Uh, whenever the Holy Spirit wants to catch your attention, he repeats it. So when expanse is repeated five times, we ought to pay attention to it. This is the Hebrew word rakiah which means expanse, atmosphere. Literally, it means a thin, stretched-out area. A thin, stretched-out area. So God is establishing this stretched-out area, which he places in the water, and it's like it expands and 
pushes part of the water up and keeps another part down below. So you see movement taking place here in the creation, the dynamic of energy in the, in the creation. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12 mentions this, um, uh, this 12 and 22 mentions this rakia. Uh, Isaiah 40:12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and he marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hi- and the hills in a pair of scales. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So he creates the rakia as a tent for us to dwell in. He has designed the atmosphere and the hydrosphere perfectly to support life. All of the chemicals involved in the water, all the chemicals, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, all the various trace elements that are found in the, in the atmosphere. And this heavens, this rakia, then separates the the waters below from the waters above. So we have something like this. There's a planet Earth, and then there is the gaseous atmosphere, and then above that there is this layer of water. It looks something like that. This would be the outer layer of water. This is the Earth is still covered in water, and in between you have your gases, primarily oxygen. So the question then becomes, what, it, what happened to this water? Was it water? Was it solid? Was it, since it's out in space above the stratosphere, is it ice or ice crystals? Or is it uh, a water, a water vapor? And if you have the presence of an outer layer of water, then it would have certain implications uh, for for the earth. But before we get there, we have to understand that the Bible describes three heavens. The Bible describes three different heavens. So just because you have the word rakia doesn't necessarily mean uh, the outer heavens. So let's look at what the Scripture says. In Jeremiah 4.25, we read, I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled, so that refers to the atmospheric heaven around the earth, the atmospheric heaven around the earth. Then in Isaiah 13:10 we read, "For the stars of heaven and their constellations." So this is a second heaven. This is the heaven that comprises the 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 stars and the universe and the solar the solar system. So that is the second heaven. And then we have a third heaven in Hebrews 9:24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So this is the heaven of heavens, the very throne room of God. The term rakia is used for each of these heavens. In Genesis 1.17, we read, And God placed them, that is, the, the light bearers, in the expanse of he- the heavens to give light on the earth. This is the second heaven in Genesis 
Genesis 1.20, Then God said, Let the waters teem with the swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. This is the atmospheric heavens. That's heavens. That's the first heaven. And then Ezekiel 122, now over the heads of the living beings, those are the uh, uh, seraphim mentioned there in Ezekiel 1, uh, the living beings, there was something like an expanse, rakia, like the awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads. This would refer to the third heaven. So rakia is a word that is uh, can be ambiguous and has flexibility and can refer to the first, second or third heaven. Now, if there is a water vapor canopy over the earth, there would be certain things that would follow from that. First of all, since water vapor has the ability both to transmit incoming solar radiation, that means that light and heat comes through the water, and to retain and disperse much of that radiation reflected from the earth's surface, that means it it holds it, it doesn't reflect it back down onto the earth, It would serve as a global greenhouse, maintaining an essentially uniform uh, temperature around the earth. So you would have a greenhouse effect. This would mean that, that you didn't have extremities of cold, you didn't have freezing weather, you didn't have excessively hot weather. Uh, with, as a result of that, point number two, with nearly uniform temperatures, there would be no wind. See, wind comes because you have a colder area and a warmer area, and it is the temperature difference that causes the wind to move. So with nearly uniform temperatures, great air mass movements would be, uh, would be rare, and windstorms would be unknown. So with a uniform temperature, number one, number two, there would be no, no wind. Point number three, without wind, you don't have your a hydrologic cycle. You know, you have a water cycle where you have evaporation, and then you have water vapor, and then there is condensation of the water vapor on a dust particle, and then you have precipitation. But you have uh, evaporation because there is heat. Now you have a uniform temperature. You have wind. Wind blows over a surface of water, and you have evaporation. So without the uh, air circulation of wind, you don't have the hydrologic cycle, so there would be no wind, no rainstorms, and this fits the pattern of why nobody knew what Noah was talking about when he says it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, it would be um, a meaningless term to them. So also, without any global air circulation, there would be no turbulence or dust particles thrown up into the upper atmosphere for that water vapor to condense on and precipitate out, out from. So there would be no, nothing to cause that to rain. See, we're going to hijack on that idea when we get to Genesis 6 where it says the fountains of the deep were opened. Uh, we all, we've all been to museums and we've looked at books of what the earth looked like in its primeval state and there are volcanoes everywhere. Well, this is what the Bible describes that the fountains of the deep were opened and then the windows of heaven burst forth. What happened? You have this massive volcanic eruption throughout the earth that throws enormous amounts of uh, volcanic ash into the upper atmosphere, and all that water vapor that surrounds the earth condenses on all of that ash and precipitates out for 40 days and 40 nights. So you would have uh, an earth situation 
where you have no air circulation, no wind, very little wind, maybe a light breeze. Uh, you don't have uh, evaporation, you don't have a hydrologic cycle. And this would produce a, a world where there was comfortable uniform humidity and uh, comfortable conditions year-round. So everything would be perfect. It would produce a lush vegetation all over the earth. So there would be plenty of food for larger animals such as dinosaurs and, and mastodons, mammoths, others that were, were large animals needing a lot of uh, sustenance. There would be no barren deserts. There would be no ice caps. So you would also have a situation where water vapor canopy theoretically or possibly filtered out harmful radiation, and some of this would, could have contributed to the longevity of people prior to the flood. This is why they live to be 930 years old or 960 years old. Uh, there have been many different studies uh, done on the basis of this, and nothing has been conclusive, and so we don't want to be dogmatic that that is the reason but that could certainly contribute to it. All that I am saying is that the earth looked quite different, and the meteorology of the earth was different, the, uh, the, the vegetation on the earth was different, the life forms on the earth were radically different in that original restoration described in Genesis chapter 1. Well, that gets us down to the end of, of uh, the third day or the second day, the atmosphere, the separation of upper waters and lower waters and spatial separation, and it's the upper waters that are the, give the water for the, uh, for the Noahic flood. We'll start off next time in day three, where we'll begin to look at the division of the waters from the land, the creation of vegetation, and geographic separation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time to come together to study your word, to see that there is a logical pattern to the description of creation. These are, this is not something random, but it also presents a pattern that is vastly different from the pattern that is set forth by uh, modern uh, science, and it shows us that there's no way to accommodate what the scripture teaches with what is taught in the scientific classroom with reference to origins. Uh, we know that your word is true and absolute truth, and therefore we can rely upon that. Father, we thank you for your grace and your provision of salvation for us through Jesus Christ, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.